This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. We're going to talk about Vancouver's municipal golf courses on the show today and whether they should be repurposed into social housing. I'll tell you what, this is a debate we're going to have in 2020. The Vancouver Park Board opening up public consultation on possible alternative uses for Langara, one of the city's three publicly funded municipal full-length golf courses in the city of Vancouver. That's going to happen in the new year. There's also a movement by some academics who say, we don't have a housing crisis. We got a golf crisis. Turn these golf courses into housing. What do you think about that? We're going to talk about it on the show today, and it's our hot question too. Should Vancouver turn its three municipal golf courses into parks or social housing? Would you say, yeah, we need that housing. Let's do it. Or would you say, no, leave those golf courses alone? Here's where you can vote on that today, at CKNW on Twitter. You'll find the hot question there. Give me a follow while you're there, please. At Mike Smith News on Twitter, Smith with a Y, S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. I'm gonna, I just retweeted it, so you'll find it there, too. Phone me on the buzz line in this one and tell me what you think should be done with the city's municipal golf courses, 604 604- 331-BUZZ is the number, 604-331-2899. Let's talk about Surrey's transition now to a local police force and away from the RCMP. A new transition report has been released uh, earlier this week. Is this actually going to happen? Will Surrey get rid of the RCMP as promised by Mayor Doug McCallum and go with the local police force? Or do you think the city should ditch that plan? There's a lot of controversy around it and stick with the RCMP. Let's check in with Surrey City Councilor Brenda Locke now. She's uh, been very critical of this plan to get rid of the Mounties. Councilor Locke, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you for having me, Michael. Tell me about this new report that was posted earlier this week uh, by the by the city. I know you've got some concerns about it. Well, I think that uh, the big concern is that it's, it's again, uh, Mayor McCallum putting the cart before the horse. There's a lot going on in the process, and, and Mr. Waliopol, uh, uh, was, was pretty clear that, uh, that's only one part of the review. It still has to go to him, then it has to go to, uh, the Director of Police Services, Brenda Butterworth Carr, every step of the way it has to be reviewed, and then finally to the Solicitor General for for the final nod. But we are very, um, we're still quite far away from all of those uh, pieces of the process falling into place. Right. The city has talked about a, a plan, or at least the mayor's office has talked about a two-year transition plan to transition away from the RCMP and set up a local police force in the city of Surrey. Do you think that's realistic that this can be done to get rid of the Mounties and go to a local police force in just two years? Uh, I, I certainly don't think so, and and uh, it seems that Mr. Opal doesn't believe that to be true either. Um, I think uh, Mr. Opal's comment was they're getting way ahead of themselves. Our, our mayor seems to think everything is simple. Um, public safety is not simple, and certainly policing is not simple. Okay, Wally Opal, of course, the former Attorney General, has been appointed by the province to kind of oversee uh, this transition. And I guess the provincial government, hasn't the provincial government, though, given, I guess, effectively approval and principle to the idea? 
they gave um, Surrey the go-ahead to start looking at the process. Yeah. And so um, that's what has been happening, and, and uh, that's what has moved along um, over the, the past year. I think one of the challenges, though, that um, we raised, too, on, on the 23rd of December is that the public actually, uh, when we get down to it, don't want this. And um, the public are pushing back. We saw that on the 16th of uh, December at our at our finance um, committee meeting, our finance meeting in chamber, and uh, we certainly see that in the report that was just released uh, on uh, the day before the day before Christmas. Okay, Councillor, you campaigned with Mayor Doug McCallum in the last municipal election as part of his safe Surrey coalition and you, you've since right. split with the mayor and you're sitting as an independent. So yeah. you, you campaigned in favor of a, of a local police force. Are you, do you still like the idea in principle or have you had a total rethink on it? Um, I've, I've had a significant rethink on it, but you know, one of the things, um, that we had to do is you have to do your due diligence. So when, when we were elected, we always said we wanted more safety. We, our real issue was around public safety. It wasn't so much focused on the RCMP, except for, um, I did agree we needed to review the contract with the RCMP. I still believe that to be true. Um, but, uh, this is, this is no way to move it forward. And, uh, the, the process has been so um, so badly managed that uh, I think we have to start over. Well, is your concern more one around process, or do you think now that the city should just stick with the RCMP? You know, right now, given that um, the uh, the finance or the uh, budget showed a, a pure gutting of services and. Um, infrastructure in our city. I'd say we need to uh, just stick with the RCMP and properly resource them and perhaps uh, have a police board. And that's something new for the RCMP. They've only started recently allowing that. But I think that the governance model and the switch of the governance model may be the thing that mitigates some of the challenges of not having local input into uh, what's going on um, with the police. Speaking to Surrey City Councillor Brenda Locke, what's your biggest concern about the transition plan to a local police force and getting rid of the RCMP as it's been sort of articulated and laid out by the mayor? What's your biggest concern there? I think um, for me right now, it is that this process has been predicated on a lie. The public do not want this to happen, and I think that's so clear. I think that um, uh, Minister Minister Farnworth needs to understand that. So really, we're dealing with what is the mayor's vanity project moving forward. He wants this. He wanted this previously when he was mayor. And I think when we look at all of the important issues around public safety, this will not be good for Surrey. Okay, why did you campaign in favor of it then? I mean, if it's a vanity project for the mayor to do this, but you were in favor of it during the election, though. Well, I would, like I said, I was in favor of addressing public safety issues, yeah. significant challenges that we've had in Surrey, and I was also in favor of reviewing the RCMP contract itself. So those two things, I, I still think we need to move forward. But um, this has become... Uh, 
a hidden secretive process that nobody's had any um, information on, certainly none of us that are, uh, that are elected in, in the city of Surrey. It's all held within the mayor's uh, chamber. So we don't, uh, we really don't know what's going on other than he, he cut a deal with the city of Vancouver and the VPD to, to develop um, uh, a transition process. Okay, this report that was posted this week on on Monday, kind of an unusual time to to bring out a big report like this, which is a couple of days before Christmas. Uh, does it contain any of the the public consultation? I mean, you you mentioned that yes. you think the public doesn't support it, but does this re- does this report reflect that? Yes. So on June the twenty fourth, the mayor came out with a statement that ninety three percent of the public wanted to see that police transition happen. Um, I couldn't believe that because it just wasn't what I was hearing on the street and I thought it sounded odd, so I immediately asked for the raw data from the city's public consultation process. I got stonewalled and stonewalled until the 27th of September when they gave me a copy of, of uh, of the raw data. The raw data I have to, I got on the 27th does not match the raw data that is posted on our website. Mm. But I can tell you that that raw data is very clear. The public, um, there's comments like, we do not need this, this is a waste of money. My, the document that I was provided is 124 pages. The public, the, the, or the ones that is posted on our website is 600 um, over 600 pages. It it's really a it's caused all kinds of division in our city, and I think it's something we have to just pause yeah. and reengage the public with. What, what what do you think should be done now? So you're saying what? Just slam? Put, just put the brakes on this whole thing? Yes, I actually did a notice of motion and then a motion on the 16th that we consider it, and it was, again, a 4-5 split, which is fairly normal on our council um, yeah. to deny it. Yourself, Doug in Surrey, hi. Hi there. I'd like to say that I'm extremely against the transition to away from the RCMP to a new police force. Uh, Mr. McCallum has done nothing but dislead and deceive our um, citizens of Surrey not allowing us to speak, not listening to what we're saying, not allowing us to have a vote on this situation and ramming this police force down our throats. We well, know he doing what he said? He won the election. He, camp- he campaigned clearly on this plan, and he won. He won on a number of issues that more people were more concerned about, mm-hmm. as if the LRT being run down King George was a major one. Skytrain was another major one, which he obviously has told us wrong information about that as well. This police force is being jammed down our throats as a legacy for himself and nothing more. We are against it. There are more people signed up against this than there are um, people on that voted for members of his council. Okay, Doug, thank you you for the call, man. I think you got your point across. Ivan Scott, he's uh, head of the Keep the RCMP group, calling in from Los Angeles. Ivan, thanks for calling in. Good morning, Michael. Good morning to Brenda. All right, what do you want to say? 
Well, Michael, I just listened to Doug there. I have a petition here, and I can tell you now that 37,000 people say exactly the same thing as what Doug has just said. I, I couldn't say it better than what he said there. Uh, it's been rammed down our throat. It wasn't, it wasn't something that uh, was, he won the campaign on. He won the campaign on other things, and everybody thought at the time that he would then say, okay, well, let's have a look at this, and uh, let's be transparent. And he hasn't you, been transparent from the get-go. How are you going to stop it, though? He won a majority. He's still got his majority, just barely. He's lost a few of his councillors, obviously, but he's still hanging in there with that majority. How do you stop it? We're going to approach the uh, the the, the uh, provincial government, and if it doesn't work with the provincial government, we're going to work with the uh, federal government because this is such an important f- facet of uh, of Canada that it's ridiculous what's happening down here and the way that uh, democracy is being utilized by Mr. McCallum and his five people. Okay, Ivan, thanks for calling in. Councillor Locke, what do you think about that? I mean, he says you've got to appeal to the provincial government to put the brakes on this thing. Have you talked to... Uh, Mike Farnworth or Opal or any of these guys to, to tell them that, look, you, you guys don't want this now? Certainly, I've talked to uh, Mr. Opal, and I've also talked to some other mayors in other cities in in Metro Vancouver, and there is becoming a growing concern by other, uh, other Metro mayors that this will destabilize um, policing in in Metro Vancouver. One of the issues that I think uh, is going to be a huge challenge in this process is is hiring and the whole human resources issue. Like, where are they going to get these uh, officers from? There is not a, a a great abundance of police officers waiting to be hired, and certainly uh, the mayor has talked about people badging over. That is not going to happen. The RCMP are giving priority to all their members here, and they will be redeployed uh, throughout British Columbia or wherever they choose to go. Um, Langley just did a call for for more officers, and I expect some of them would be going there. So, um, Hmm. you know, when you look at a a West Vancouver, for example, Police officer wages are not uh, are, are not really appropriate enough to be living in in an area where your real estate is that high. So a lot of officers from VPD, I think VPD has about 17% of their officers live in the city of Vancouver. Right. Um, far greater here in Surrey, uh, yeah. the number of RCMP officers, I can tell you. Let's go to Ramona in Surrey on the open line. Hi. Hi, um, I represent the Canadian Association of Retired Persons in Surrey. I'm the president. Uh, we have 2,200 members in Surrey, and uh, older people vote. So the way we're going to get rid of Doug McCallum and his four soulless councillors is we're going to vote them out in the next election. This is totally crazy. Our taxes are going to go up astronomically. The mayor, being an older person himself, ought to know better, but he doesn't seem to, and he's not listening. He wouldn't let anybody speak at council, push that whole budget through, and that budget is shameful. It's taking away services from 
from what we need. No firefighters, no more boots on the ground. So we're supposed to hang around and wait for this police force. It's all airy-fairy. And he only has four councillors plus himself who are voting for this. The other four councillors are voting against it, but he won't let them speak. Okay, Ramona, thank you for the call. Well, like I said, he's still got his majority, barely. Sasha in Surrey. Hi. Hi. Right, we got about a minute um, left. Go ahead. Yeah. No, well, I just wanted to say that I think part of what McCallum uh, campaigned on was transparency, and he's had none of that. Um, I'm not particularly for or against, but at this point, with the little information that he's allowing to slip out, I'm absolutely against changing police force. We need to know if it's such a good move, then tell us, explain it, right? We're not, we can understand, but you have to explain it. And the way he's conducted himself is absolutely shameful. It's undemocratic to say that the election was a referendum is complete hogwash. The election was an election. A referendum is a referendum. Sasha, thank you for the call. Uh, Councillor Locke, we just got 30 seconds left here. Is 2020 going to be sort of the crunch time on this on this debate, do you think? Well, I think it certainly will. I mean, we've got, uh, I, I think what Sasha said really kind of cinched it for me. There has been no transparency. This process has been in secret. And I think, uh, I think that the Solicitor okay. General has to take a look at that. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Michael. You bet. That's Surrey City Councillor Brenda Locke. Let's talk about Vancouver's municipally owned golf courses now. Should they be turned into social housing? Wow, you want to get a debate going on that. That is uh, interesting. This is an idea that has come up in the past. It's flaring up again. A little later on in the show, I'm going to be speaking to UBC Professor Patrick Condon, who has written a, a very interesting article on this, arguing to transition the three municipal golf courses in the city of Vancouver. So that's the Fraser View Golf Club, Langara. And McCleary says, take that land, turn it into social housing and parks. They say the land on these three municipal golf courses is worth, wait for it, $20 billion. They argue that why not use that land for housing instead of, as they put it, for a few hundred people in spiked shoes to hit a small white golf ball with metal sticks around the place. $20 billion that land is worth. What do you think about that? Should the city turn its municipal golf courses into social housing? Let's check in with Park Board Commissioner Trisha Barker now. She's with the NPA party and the Park Board. I'm very pleased she could come into the studio. Hi. Hi, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming in. So what do you think of this idea? Turn our golf courses, municipal golf courses, into social housing. Your thoughts? Uh, I think it's a little crazy to even contemplate doing anything like that with our golf courses. Okay, why is that? Well, we actually need um, as much green space as we can get. And to start removing some of that is just outrageous because if we remove that, we're never going to get it back. And um, as many people know, I'm a huge supporter of the seniors in this city. And these golf courses do so much to help our seniors that um, we would then have to start dealing with other problems if we took these golf courses away. 
Okay, I know for sure. I know I know some people who play those some of those courses too, and I know that uh, if if this was done, if this idea was done, obviously there'd be a lot of disappointed people who enjoy playing these these courses because they're reasonably priced and people can go out and, and enjoy them. But the people who support the idea of repurposing them say, isn't golf kind of a dying, well, maybe not a dying sport, but it seems to be going down in popularity if you take a look at some of the surveys. Well, we've got between fifty and 60,000 people playing on each of these courses. Right. Uh, not 60,000 people, but that's how many um, games are played during right. the year. Right. So that's quite a few. That's not just a few hundred. That's between fifty and 60,000 people um, are out enjoying themselves. Right. They argue that the land, this is prime land in one of the most expensive cities around these days. $20 billion that this land is is valued at and that it would be perfect for developing into social housing. The land is pretty flat, pretty accessible to transit, uh, and it would make a lot more sense to sort of use the land for for other purposes. And they also, they also argue that there's a lot of other golf course, private golf courses in the city that people could use. What are your thoughts on that? Well, people can't afford those other golf courses. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've... The discounts that we give at our municipal golf courses are incredible. And so this makes it accessible to people who wouldn't normally be able to play golf. And, you know, we have lots of land in Vancouver that isn't being used right now. Look at all of our big um, parking lots. And that's just concrete. So why don't we, if we need uh, space for social, social housing, why don't we go there? The people who support this idea, Commissioner, saying that if you took these golf, these three municipal golf courses turned into social housing, you could house 60,000 people. Imagine that, 60,000 housing units. That's a lot. Yes, but you could get that other places also. Okay, where, where would you get them? As I said, look at all yeah. the uh, parking lots that we have. Look at if we take, you know, people aren't using their cars as much. If we started to look at um, the malls and their big parking lots, what if we started taking away some of that? And that's just concrete. That's not green mm. spaces. We need as much green space as we can get in this city. To, so to start removing it, we would never get it back. Right now, we're dealing with the fact that years ago, we took away some of our public swimming pools and uh, we you know, just removed them. And now, like 10, 15 years later, we're fighting to get them back because they're such a requirement for people's enjoyment and also for uh, young families. So once we take something away, it's almost impossible to get it back, and that's why these golf courses should never be removed. Could could the land not be transitioned into social housing for people, but also green space as well? Because you certainly wouldn't need to, to build housing on the entire surface area of the golf course. You could use some of that land as parkland, as green space, and, and build the housing on it as well. But then again, you'd not be able to get back the just the plain golf course. And um, right now, these spaces, the three golf courses are Audubon uh, certified. So that means that we have um, such natural trees in there. We have a lot of animals living in there. Um, that we would lose that certification, obviously, if we put up social housing. 
What is the current position of the Park Board on this issue? Are you guys going to be doing uh, any kind of public consultation on this idea in the new year? Well, there is a part of a motion that came forward that we are going to be looking at what we could do with the golf courses. But um, I'm one of the Park Board Commissioners, along with John Cooper, that uh, we are going to fight to keep them as golf courses. Is there any way that the uh, the management of the courses could be made more effective, maybe get more public use out of them, make better uh, make better public, but uh, get more public value out of them? Or do you think they're being managed well right now? Um, our golf courses in, you know, the three municipal ones and the uh, three just pitch and putt, I'm so proud of what is happening with them within the park board. They are managed so well. Uh, you know, we've got seniors programs, we got youth programs, we have um, very many aspects of this that has been utilized in a great way. And if you even walk the trail around Langara, it's beautiful. I was yeah. down um, walking the trail beside McCleary a couple days ago. This offers some great aspects for people to get out and enjoy the city and to be around these animals. And as I said, um, the birds in the area is just incredible. 69% right now on our Twitter poll says, leave the golf courses alone. 30% say, no, let's let's uh, switch them over. We need social housing at CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find that hot question today. My guest is Trisha Barker. She's a park board commissioner with the NPA party. She's in favor of keeping the golf courses uh, just like they are. Let's go to your calls now on the open line, see what you think about it. Margaret in Vancouver, hi. Uh, good morning. Well, look, I agree with everything that uh, Trisha Barker has just said, but let me add in a few other things as well. Sure. You know, I am a golfer, and I do play on these golf courses. You know, on any, just take a snapshot. There's 216 people on any one golf course, just in, a, just in a snapshot. That's just how many people are just playing. If you remove this sort of thing, you're in a city where we're all living like rats more and more, and we're going to live like rats more and more with density. You're going to have more problems. You know, We have to think about the other hand. On one hand, we talk about loneliness. We talk about psychological problems. There's, and then you want to take yeah. away some place where hundreds of people get fresh air, exercise, comradeship, you know, at, at an affordable price. And these are all the people who can't afford Shaughnessy and, and all the big golf clubs and all the rest of it. It's asinine. It's absolutely asinine to think. I mean, homelessness is a big issue. And those sort of social housing is a big issue. But you can't take one black hole and pour every resource you've got into it. I mean, let's face it, you'll have more problems if you start taking away a few resources like you know, affordable golf courses. It just okay. makes no sense to me at all. Margaret, thank you for a good call. Uh, Commissioner, I, I suspect you'd agree with her. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And also, if you look at that Langara golf course, they have the lovely little um, area where can people can come and sit, look at the golf course, and uh, have a cup of coffee or have a bite to eat. And I know that some seniors go there, even if they can't play golf with their friends anymore, they come and meet them after their friends play around and they socialize there. So it's a great hub for social socialization. Let's go to Richard in Vancouver. Hi. Hi, good morning. I had yeah, someone stole my thunder. It's an asinine idea. It's absolutely stupid because 
uh, as the city gets more and more dense, I believe uh, golf courses come under uh, the zoning of uh, being parkland and all that. We're going to need more parkland in this city or preserve as much as we, we have already. But also, I, I kind of see a, a worse thing happening here. I think we, we still have a very left-leaning city council and parks board. And I think these people are politically trying to do as much as they can to build as much social housing in this city at any cost to get themselves reelected. And that's what I actually see what's really happening right here. It's a sort of a political agenda to basically advance a reelection for a left of center government in this city. Okay, well, well, let's see what Commissioner Barker thinks about that. Tricia, you're with the NPA party down there. What's your read on the kind of the, the mood of this park board on this issue? Well, whatever the people are who are sitting around that table are thinking, it's still going to be the people that live in Vancouver that are going to make the decision about what happens to our golf courses. And I think as long as people continue to speak out about how much they want to keep the golf courses, they will remain as golf courses. Let's go to John and Ladner on the open line. Hey, John. Yeah, I don't think they should uh, do anything with the golf courses, leave them as is, because they were probably made golf courses by being taken out of the ALR at the time they were formed. The other part is, hmm. look at Richmond. Richmond Center, they're going to be adding buildings on there where there was parking lot and on top of the, the mall itself. And I hear they're going to do something similar to Lansdowne. Parking lots. There's where you got the land. Okay. Okay, John, thanks for the call. Let's go to Rob in Vancouver. Hi, Rob. Uh, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, and, uh, just to correct that last fellow, they weren't taken out of the ALR. Fraseview was a project during the Depression. That's how the mm-hmm. Fraseview was built. Langara was owned by CP Rail. They donated the land to the city uh, mm-hmm. under the, with the understanding it will remain a golf course. McClary was built in the late 1950s. Uh, they're all heritage sites. They're, they're just fantastic attractions to the city. I was talking to uh, an Oriental gentleman one day, and uh, I've been a golfer all my life. He said, where should I play? And I said, Fraserview. And he said, oh, he said, world-famous golf course. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's world-known, world-renowned Fraserview golf course. Okay. Uh, okay. Bring back junior programs. Get the kids out there. Teach them how to get them to caddy. Get them to earn a buck. Teach them some etiquette to teach you things about life as well, for heaven's sake. Social housing, the first lady would call, would write, there'd be a bunch of rat holes in no time at all. I mean, there's got to be a better solution for social housing, and it's certainly a bad, bad idea is to turn golf courses into social housing. An old friend of mine used to say, golf, G-O-L-F, God's own living fraternity, and you can worship the course (laughs) of your choice. Thank you you for the call. I I appreciate the... uh, historic context of the courses as well um i liked what he said there about getting young people involved i mean they got programs there for young people though they must don't they commissioner Yes, it's getting more and more extensive. We've got the junior training and development at Fraser Golf Academy, the same at McCleary. I'm sure that Langaro will be looking at bringing some in. And they offer um, some youth that would never have the opportunity to go and play golf, to come out and play golf, yeah. to learn. Uh, they, they're it's it's tremendous if you come out and look at the young people that are getting out to golf and being inspired by what they're doing it's something that we have to continue let's go to jd in white rock hi 
Hey there. I don't know if any idea is asinine, as a caller uh, a while ago said. Uh, we just need to, to, to listen and explore ideas. Now, I'm not a fan of turning the golf courses uh, into uh, housing. I mean, the city of South Surrey made a, what, two, three million dollar parking lot on a roundabout for uh, for SkyTrain. It sits empty for the, for the most part. Now it's starting to get two or three cars in it. Listen, something has to happen. My dad is now uh, homeless. He was evicted last month. In the, he's in St. Paul's with pneumonia. He's in a wheelchair, motorized wheelchair. We've been talking about this for two GD long, and something has to happen. Okay. Something's got to give. Okay, Jay, th- leaders. Th- thank, yeah. thank you for the oh, call, God. man. I, I hate to step on you there, and I, I wish you the best there with, with your dad. But I appreciate all the calls. We had a ton of calls there, and uh, we didn't get to all of them. Uh, but we'll return to this topic later in the show. Commissioner, thank you very much for coming into the studio. My pleasure. That is Trisha Barker. She is an MPA Park Board Commissioner. All right, let's talk driving now, including winter driving tips, sharing the road with cyclists, and is this the year that you will switch to an electric vehicle? My guest is Steve Wallace, owner of Wallace Driving School. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Steve. Well, hi. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, Mike. Thank you, Steve. Same to you, and thanks for coming on. Let's talk a little uh, winter driving right now. And one of the things that jumps out at me and sort of recent driving the last few days for myself, Steve, is that we just passed the winter solstice. The days are very short. It gets dark very quickly. And man, oh man, when I sometimes see cyclists dressed in dark clothes with no lights, or I see pedestrians... Uh, walking into walking uh, at crosswalks and stuff with with uh, very dark clothing on, you got to be so aware and cautious behind the wheel. And you know, my wife is an avid cyclist, and she's got very bright light on her bike. She's got highly reflective clothes that she wears when she's on her bike, and her motto is "Get lit or get hit." And I just want to, you know, people have got to. Be if they're a pedestrian or they're a cyclist, you got to be seen. What are your thoughts on it? Well, this is the this is the year we should be lighting up, and I mean lighting up everything. And I I don't want to switch topics early, but I mean there should be a law in this province that you cannot paint a line on a roadway, whether it's a lane marking or a, a marking for the shoulder that is not reflective. And they consistently, consistently put lines on the road that you cannot see. And they burn off the old lines and then realign the travel lanes, the vehicle travel lanes, car travel lanes, because of the accommodation of bike lanes or other manners of re, you know, redirecting traffic. And the burned off lines actually shine up better than the lines that they're painting on the road. And so somebody's got to get a, a half a brain and realize that if you have reflective lines on the road, and this goes to reflective clothing, they shouldn't be able to sell anything in this province as far as an outer garment is concerned without some sort of reflective thing that would shine up at night. And I think pedestrians are most in peril for reasons that you know, anytime they have an argument with a vehicle and there's a crash, I mean, the pedestrians always come off worse, and that applies to cyclists as well. So the big deal this year, I think the motto this year would be light up, light up no matter who you are or where you're going. Okay, I like it, especially the uh, the reflective lines on the road as well, because the technology is advanced now that some of those lines they can lay down on the road, they can be super bright. I mean, they work really well. Well, we are a reactive society. Here's what's, if you want to sum up the Canadian culture, okay, here's what we do. We're going to wait for somebody to get killed, 
and then there'll be a lawsuit. And then over time, what we'll do is we'll do a reactive thing because we are a reactive society. And then we'll decide someone will have the bright idea, no pun intended. Oh, let's have reflective lines. And we've been asking for that for almost a decade. And the powers that be, whether municipal, provincial or federal, are simply, I think they're irresponsible at this point. Okay, speaking of Steve Wallace, Wallace Driving School. Steve, you do a great job in the column that you write in the Victoria Times Colonist uh, newspaper, which people can access online, and I, I highly recommend that you check out. And uh, I was reading about some of your tips on sharing the road, right? So what are your thoughts on that for cyclists well, and also like a lot of electric bikes out there these days too? Well, the, the provincial government, I have great, great sympathy for them. I don't know what they're going to do, Mike, uh, to be blunt. There, there was a guy passed me on an electric skateboard the other day. Now, he was going pretty fast, uh, and he seemed like he knew what he was doing. But I don't know what the rule is, and I've tried to find out. And there's another fella, and they're altering their um, electric bikes so that they're only allowed to go, you know, 30K. This is their max speed. But a lot of them are modifying them, and they're flying by at 50Ks and so on. And then there's other things like there's a guy was on a Segway and to be blunt, we didn't know whether he should be on the sidewalk or on the road. And he was cooking along pretty good too. And so the province has said that they're going to include in legislation, all of these modes of transportation sooner than later. And I think there's going to be legislation in the spring session, or at least one of the cabinet ministers have told me that. So I think that we're going to have some sort of, of governance of those items. And I hope it's not just a money grab and a licensing, you know, kerfuffle for these people. But the fact is we have to have some sort of manner of insurance. There's no way that we as drivers should be taking the 100% load because you know what's going to happen to an insurance adjuster. If a car hits a Segway, well, the Segway isn't insured. Well, guess who's going to be immediately deemed to be at fault for insurance purposes? Those kinds of things have got to be sorted out and they've got to be sorted out soon. Okay, well, I can tell you I've seen those electric skateboards too, Steve, and yeah, they're getting faster, they're getting more powerful, and I can tell you that the law in British Columbia now, it's illegal to use an electric skateboard on a road, like a, a road in, in British Columbia, you're only supposed to be able to use those on like like private land or whatever, but... It's an emerging area of lot, as for sure, because we've seen electric scooters, electric bicycles and stuff. So you're right. I think that's one that's going to be an issue for the provincial government uh, in the new year. Steve, let me ask you about um, the requirement that the B.C. government brought in for ride-hailing drivers, a Class 4 commercial license. I spoke yesterday to a Coquitlam City Councillor who recently got her class four because she wants to be a ride-hailing driver. And she said she was surprised by the amount of knowledge she had to learn on driving a, like a heavy uh, trucks and tractor trailers and that kind of thing to get a class four, which she said just seemed like, I don't know, kind of going too far when you just want to be a ride-hailing driver. Your thoughts on the class four requirements for ride-hailing, do you think it's a good idea? Um, I think the class four should be mandatory for a couple of reasons. All it is is a taxi endorsement, and they're competing directly with the taxi. So let's put them all on a on on, on a, a level playing field. Okay. Now the other thing too, though, is I've I've sort of modified my thoughts on that over the last couple of months. I think that the class four designation has two parts. One is if you want to drive a bus up to twenty four passengers, or if in fact you have 
um, uh, a taxi where you're simply going to go through a different test. So there are two kinds of tests for the class four. And when you study the book, you only have to study those sections that require the restricted class four license, which is under the uh, 12 passengers. So as such, if you want a taxi license, my solution to this whole problem is, I know it sounds odd, but let's call it class four light and put the cabs and the ride hailing people all in the same category without the onerous and significant written test. They already have a class five license. The driving they're doing is in a class five type car and there's no more necessity to have them have all these kinds of things that go with air brakes and, and large buses and so on and do that restricted category for for taxi and ride hailing ride sharing services and i think that they need what's called i would call it a, a class four uh a type or whatever and that new classification would put everyone on a level playing field and it would be a tertiary mechanical inspection and i tell you right now more people flunk that mechanical inspection on the vehicles than they do the driving section on the class fours because my conversation with the examiners uh, they're telling me, gee, Steve, these guys can drive. Of course, they've been driving for 30 years or 20 years, and they want to get a Class 4. And the Class 4 road test is very similar to the Class 5. It's actually somewhat easier than the Class 5 uh, uh, class uh, to get to get your L, right. actually. Right. Uh, you know, to get to go from L to N is, is a very difficult test. There's nine skill-related things. But the Class 4 light would be on and off the highway, a number of tertiary things that you would do with left turns, right turns, some parking, and so on, and the mechanical inspection, uh, yeah. and these people yeah. would be good to go. Okay, I like that idea too, and I, I think I agree with you that uh, a separate license classification for taxi and ride hailing drivers, I think, makes a lot of sense. Steve, you do a great job educating the public on the rules of the road. What would you say right now if I asked you what is the most misunderstood? rule of the road out there that maybe people don't realize what the law is or maybe they have uh, a poor understanding or they got the wrong idea what the law actually is well i'll go well, i'll go with a couple mike the first one is left turn on a solid red light so if in fact you're at an intersection and you're turning from a two-way or a one-way onto a one-way street you can go up to the red light you can stop no pedestrians hindering you no vehicles hindering you, bicycles or otherwise, and you can turn left on that red light onto a one-way street after stopping and making sure it's safe. And people consistently, I would say only one person in every hundred in this province knows that rule and expedites it. And as such, it keeps the traffic moving. That's a big, big right. deal. The other thing is that people don't understand the difference between a yield and a, and a merge sign. A merge means that you have equal rights to get on that road with a person that's already in that lane. So that person in the lane must accommodate you getting on that highway. A yield sign, you could probably rot in that lane for decades, and they have no duty to perform or no duty to let you in to the to the travel lane. Usually it's a courtesy, and most people in British Columbia create space for people who are yielding to get onto a roadway. And, and okay. I, there's a lot more courtesy out there than people really give us credit for. Let's go to Glenn Maple Ridge. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Steve, I'm 100% behind you on the painted lines. They're awful. You can't see them at all at night and rainy. It's, they're absolutely terrible. One other thing that they should also paint is those, uh, they should put reflectors on those 
those concrete islands, you know, where the where they're separating the left turn lane, the low ones, you can't see those either half the time at nighttime. You don't know where they start and begin, and how many people are hitting those and losing control. Okay, Steve. Well, yeah. Well, the other thing too is that why are they there? We're, we're trying to figure out why those concrete and those concrete curbs are there with the asphalted areas, and we're trying to figure out why they exist. In many cases, they've done away with them, and they put in the lines to designate the separation of traffic. Unless there have been horrendous crashes in these areas, why are you putting these islands and then hiding them by not painting reflective uh, uh, markings? Uh, it's, it's, it's almost like they want someone to hit them. You're talking about in a left a left turn lane. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's a good question. Let's let's go to uh, Blake in the West End. Hey, Blake. Good morning. This is more regarding the skateboards, electric, and, and yeah. that. Um, in the West End here, on the Comox Street, for example, it's all downhill from Broad. Well, guess what? Because they're not supposed to be in the two-way bike lanes and on the road, they're using the sidewalks like mad now, and we have a school here. So the elderly, the scooters and that, are now using the road because the sidewalks are very unsafe because of all this new uh, new fads and that. I think when this gentleman talks to the, the motor vehicle branch or whatever it is, something has got to be seriously done about this. Okay, you're, you you're arguing for what licensing, Steve, for electric vehicles? No, um, I don't know what kind of licensing would be available, but I do know that there should be some sort of manner of registration. Um, as far as that registration is concerned, then at least the government will be keeping track. But the key for me is sacrosanct is the pavement is for people that are traveling. The sidewalk, particularly for mobility scooters, that is paramount. You don't want people in mobility scooters on the road. You want to make sure the sidewalks are done properly so they have certain elevations. You want to make sure that they have dips so they can go down at intersections and not have to jump curbs. So the public is used to having mobility scooters who have a certain limited speed on sidewalks. There's no way in God's green earth that the people who are riding motorized skateboards should be on a sidewalk. And I have seen in many circumstances where seniors and pedestrians have simply turned around and told them, get on the road where you belong. Let's go to Ed in Vancouver. Hey, Ed. Hi, Mike. Uh, Hi. I, a couple of things quick. Uh, number one, I drive professionally, and I can tell you when people are not paying attention, they don't know a, a, a green light is stale. It's been green for a long time. Anticipate the amber. Amber does not mean gun it and fly through the intersection. And number two, and really in my mind, it holds up traffic downtown more than anything. When you are on the curb or approaching the curb as a pedestrian, and that ham says, do not walk, I can't tell you how many times traffic's been held up for five or ten minutes because you cannot take a right-hand turn off of Georgia onto Burrard okay. because pedestrians ignore it, don't walk. And it okay, Blake, th Blake, thanks okay. for the call. Steve, you just got a minute. Go ahead. Three, th three things. Number one, um, as far as the pedestrians are concerned, the progressive municipalities are holding pedestrians back, allowing for at least two or three or four cars to make the right turn prior to putting the walk light on. 
and you see the, 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 the little white man that says you can walk. The second thing is people don't understand. When the hand comes up and there's a countdown, that means you're not permitted to start walking. You must stay where you are, regardless of what the countdown or seconds are. Okay. That's a real problem. And the other thing is that as far as the, uh, the weights are concerned um, yeah. at the intersections, uh, you have to move traffic. And if your credo is keep the traffic moving, you'll okay. come to very logical solutions. Steve, well, the time always goes by too fast. Thanks for coming on. Hey, anytime, Mike. And Happy New Year to all your listeners. Thank you. Same to you. That's Steve Wallace. Wallace Driving School. It's a new year about to dawn. So let's talk about new year taxes. Some taxes going up, others going down. Everything you need to know. Let's check in now with Chris Sims, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. She's the BC director there. Hi, Chris. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on, Chris. Let's talk about the uh, federal changes, first of all. Now, this is the good news for taxpayers. This is the one that was promised by Justin Trudeau, and that's the change in your basic personal exemption amount, right? So this is going to save people some money. Yes, exactly. And we wanted to start it off with some good news and to give credit where it is due. This is a significant tax cut for millions of Canadians. And what this is, is your basic personal amount when you're sitting down every spring and you're doing your taxes and you write in your basic personal amount. Right now, it's a little more than $12,000 thereabouts. By the time uh, this increase happens, by 2023, that exemption will go up to 15 grand. So that means you can make $15,000 before you start paying federal taxes. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but by the year 2023, uh, the average Canadian is going to be saving around $300 a year. And there's millions of us that will be saving that. So that's significant. We wanted to give credit where it's due, that it's going to be a big tax cut federally. Of course, there's always a downside. Uh, We're seriously worried about their deficit spending right now at the federal level. But the good news is, is we are getting that basic personal amount increased. Okay, the politicians don't seem to be too worried about the, the deficit. I I no. remember once upon a time, Justin Trudeau was going, oh, we're going to balance that budget, no problem. I, he was supposed to do it this year. Remember that? Remember when he promised he'd balance the budget this year? But uh, we're nowhere close to that now. No, we completely blew through that. And it was one of his major election promises. He looked people dead in the eye. It was during one of the major debates. And again, during press conferences after that, he said he was going to balance the budget by 2019. He completely blew that. It's actually one of the reasons why we got Fibber. He's our uh, promise keeper puppet. He's there, one of our mascots. He followed him around Canada. So, yeah, we got him out there. (laughs) Okay, but that tax cut, just going back to that basic personal amount um, exemption there, that is significant. Like that. That is a that is a pretty hefty tax cut uh, in all things considered. Yes, it is. And to give yeah. straight up credit where it's due, um, it doesn't just affect some you know niche people or small groups of people. It's several million Canadians that'll be yeah. saving around three hundred bucks a year by the time it's done. So that's really nice to see. We're happy to see that. Okay, what about at the provincial level, Chris? Any big changes coming in twenty twenty? Yes, and the same thing as it is at the federal level. There's good and bad. 
So to start off with the good, we're super happy to see the end of the MSP, the medical services premium. Uh, some of your listeners uh, may not have seen those bills themselves, but I know a lot of us do get those little brown envelopes in the mail and it costs you a lot of money. And so the medical services premium, the MSP, is now officially going to be gone for 2020. Right. That was one of the campaign promises by John Horgan when he was running for premier. It's one of the reasons probably why he was elected. So we're happy to see that gone. Unfortunately, there's the bad side. All it's done is mutated. It's morphed into the employer health tax. And so we're still going to be paying it, but it's mostly hidden. We're going to be paying it through lost wage increases, higher property taxes, and higher costs for items in our stores. Because, of course, employers are people and they have to get that money from somewhere. And it's going to be coming out of our pockets one way or the other. Right. The employer health tax is the one that replaces MSP, and that's going to raise around $2 billion for government. So this is a big honking tax here, and it's like you said, it's a payroll tax. Now, the government is saying, okay, yeah, I know you know these employers, companies don't like paying these taxes, but we're going to try and insulate small business from this tax. So it kicks in if you got a payroll of $490,000 a year or higher. Do you Mm -hmm. think that that is an adequate threshold to protect small business from the impact of this tax? No, it's not, unfortunately. And it's a very low threshold. It's one of the lowest in all of Canada, meaning that you don't need to have that many employer employees on your payroll in order to get nailed with this thing. So as you point out, yeah. a payroll of more than, they say, $500,000, but of course you have to notch it underneath that, you start automatically paying the EHT, the employer health tax, and it's right. super low. So one of the things that some business groups are asking for to eventually get rid of it is at least start with heightening the threshold so that it's only a bigger business that's paying it. But we need to keep in mind that it's medium-sized businesses, in some cases what would be classified as smaller businesses and bigger businesses getting hit with this. To give you examples, so there's this auto truck uh, parts and car parts place up in Prince George. They're a Main Street employer. They've been there for almost 40 years. They employ tons of people. They are now paying between fifty-five and $65,000 more per year because of the employer health tax. Because not only do they pay the EHT for their employees, their physical building's property taxes have gone up because the city of Prince George has to pay the EHT and the owner's own property, her home taxes have gone up. So she's getting hit three different ways just for employing people. And if you look on a bigger scale, the recent mill shutdown in Kelowna, it's been partially, not fully, but part of the reason why that's happening, according to the local Chamber of Commerce there in Kelowna, is because of the employer health tax. Do you think those workers care that their mill happened to be a big business? No, they're out of work. And it's one of the reasons why. So it hits people. It hurts people. Okay, I think this employer health tax is going to be a big political issue in 2020 because you've got Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson uh, attacking this tax, going after it, saying it's a terrible tax. When you try to pin him down, though, and I've tried to do this, (laughs) what would you do with that tax? Would you eliminate it? How would you replace all the money that it raises? That's when he starts to kind of ducking and dodging and you can't really pin him down. I suspect what he will eventually promise is to raise that threshold 
where the tax kicks in. So right now it's a payroll tax of a $490,000 payroll. I wouldn't be surprised to see him say, well, we'll raise it up to, I don't know, 750000 Who knows what it'll be, but he'll have to do something like that. He can't eliminate that tax because it just brings in too much money to government. He can say that, and we'd like to see that step happen, even though we would call that a baby step. Our ultimate goal would be to get rid of it completely. It's one of the reasons well, why you, we well, praise... Where do you, what do you do with all the money? Like, that's bringing in $2 billion bucks a year, Chris. Where are you supposed to well, get the money? you could start in a few places. So I can go through the books and actually find that money for you. But off the top of my head, you could start things like stopping fighting natural resource development. So, for example... If Canada had the full pipeline capacity that we should have right now, we would have raised more than $13 billion over the past 10 years just in the federal taxes. That's not even touching property taxes. That's not touching the provincial taxes or the wages it would be paying to people. That's one thing. So here we are in B.C., not only are we spending taxpayers' money actually fighting things like the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, we're missing out on massive tax dollars, intake dollars, from not having our proper pipeline capacity. Another element, ICBC, why don't we take this thing off of our books, right? Mm. If we didn't have to have be on the hook for that every year as a fiscal risk, Carol James correctly calls it, as the finance minister, a fiscal risk to British Columbians. Take that thing off of your books. you got a lot more liquid money to move around, or at least consider okay. doing that. Well, ICBC, the dumpster fire over there continuing to burn. I think that's going to be a big story in 2020 as well. What do you think should be done at ICBC? 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Toll free on your cell. It's star... 9898. Let's go to Paul in Delta. Hey, Paul. Good morning and uh, happy holidays to you. Thanks, um, to you. I, uh, I think that ICBC needs to go, period. They have been losing money. The government, the, the former government, liberals, have been using uh, ICBC money to balance their budget, uh, taking money out of it. We see this a continuous problem, and it's going to be continually a problem for uh, another government, uh, apart from NDP, whoever gets in next time, this needs to be done, gone, and bring in a private insurance. Simple okay. as that. Okay, thanks for the call. Chris, you said earlier, you know, maybe we should get rid of it as well, but what would be your idea to reform ICBC? Uh, get rid of it. Uh, it's way past the point of needing reform. It's a monopoly. The government tries to run it, which just sounds like a disaster. We think that there should be full and open competition for auto insurance in British Columbia. We're all adults here, and if we're driving, we should be allowed to shop around and find our own insurance rates. It's one of the reasons why we pay the highest rates in all of Canada. And it's really mind-numbing, especially if you're a British Columbian like myself, born and raised, and then you move away and you work somewhere else for a while and come back here the sticker shock is amazing. I can't believe what BC drivers are putting up with. Uh, a lot of people across Canada pay less for combining even their home insurance and, and their content uh, insurance than with their car insurance. And here, we're just paying well, through the nose. Well, one of the things I find frustrating is like that bundling that you just described, right? Like if people can bundle yeah. your car insurance with your home insurance and your life insurance or whatever, like you can do in other provinces and get a better deal. You know, I mean, that's it's it's a shame that you can't do that in British Columbia uh, with a government monopoly uh, auto insurance. But 
when I was just listening to you, Chris, say that we're paying the highest insurance in the country, I'm just imagining if David Eby was listening to this right now, he'd be he'd be screaming at his radio, no, it's not, we're not paying the highest, this is just spin. But the, the funny thing is, it's like, statistics are a funny thing because you can spin them any which way and it, sometimes i'll listen to the government say oh no we've got some of the best insurance rates in the country with public auto insurance then i'll talk to the canadian insurance bureau who mm-hmm. represent the private insurers and they'll say the opposite no you're paying the highest in the country so what are people supposed to believe because they're told two different things well there there are some middle of the road numbers you can find out there and the average amount that ICBC people are paying every year is now more than $1800 a year. Like it's yeah. gross. You know what? Pick up the phone. I know it sounds anecdotal. Phone your friends and family. In places like Alberta, I've lived in Nova Scotia. I mean the the rates were a fraction there. And yeah. I know I'm speaking anecdotally, but, you know, British Columbians are smart. A lot of us have moved away, lived away, come from away, all that, all that jazz. We know when we're getting screwed over, and we're definitely getting screwed over by these rates at ICBC. And with all due respect, uh, Minister Eby, the Attorney General, can, can play with numbers at the edges or try to defend ICBC. He just shouldn't. He's a smart man. He's a very okay. smart man. He shouldn't try to own this dumpster fire. He should well, get rid of it. Well, you know what? The NDP have always liked to accuse the Liberals of playing politics with ICBC, but I wonder if we'll see the NDP do the, the same darn thing in the new year because we've already seen EB just in the last few weeks delay the mm-hmm. ICBC uh, rate request for 2020 and i got yep. a feeling i got a feeling this government's going to intervene here somehow in icbc because the last thing they want is people getting absolutely walloped with another huge rate hike especially if if, if there's a potential a possibility for an election in the new yep. year let's go to doug in surrey hey doug hi mike hi uh, I don't know if you lived in Ontario when David Peterson got elected, but uh, I remember him saying that he was going to provincialize insurance back there because we were getting put through the uh, meat grinder by all the little private people down the street on University Avenue. It came out that uh, three or four umbrellas, I guess you could call them, ran about three or four different insurance names. It was the... Um, okay, get, know, to your bo- get to your bottom line, will you? Because we're just about out of time here. We could privatize it, yeah. Privatize but, it, yeah. But don't expect, but don't expect to get too big a break because they know a money grab when they can see it. Okay, Doug. Thanks for the call. This is going to be an interesting one in the new year, Chris. I wonder what the Liberals are going to say. This is another one. It's tough to pin them down on it. They love to criticize ICBC, but they're a little reticent to say exactly what they would do themselves. We agree, and we'd like to hear some clarity coming yeah. from Mr. Wilkinson. We want to hear him stand up and say he's going to fully uh, open it up to competition. And just to give a good example, compare us to Alberta. Look at mm. Alberta. We've got very similar climate, very similar driving conditions, lots of fancy cars out there. This idea okay. that it's because we have sports cars is silly. Compare us to Alberta. They get to shop around. We don't. Chris, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Merry Christmas. All right. Same to you. That's Chris Sims, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Appreciate her time today. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll take a look back at the year in real estate. That's next. This is Mike Smith. Stick around. About take a look back at the year in real estate. After the red hot real estate market and the big price jumps we saw, we saw a lot of government intervention into the real estate market, a big softening of prices 
as a result. But as 2019 unfolded, we've seen uh, some rebounding of the housing market as well. Let's check in now with Steve Soretsky. He's a Vancouver Realtor and housing analyst. Steve, it's nice to talk to you again. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. Hey, Steve, when we look back at the start of the year, I remember 2019 was the real downturn in housing, and it sort of it sort of, sort of continued very soft at the at the start of the year, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it could, if you look at the first sort of half of 2019, if you take those first cumulative like six months um, and compare them historically to, you know, the six months of, of any sort of start of the year, it was actually the slowest, uh, it was the fewest number of home sales uh, whether that be condos, townhouses, et cetera, uh, across Greater Vancouver in 20 years. So we got off to basically the slowest start um, to the first half of 2019 in, in a 20-year period. So, um, yeah, I know it was an incredibly weak year, and then uh, obviously it started to pick up in the back half of 2019, where we actually saw sales uh, basically normalize, um, come in sort of around more of a long-term historical average. Okay, was that sort of downturn in sales? Is, would you point to directly to the government taxation and intervention that we saw? Uh, I personally don't. I mean, obviously, I think it's hard to pinpoint. I think that there's so many factors, right? That you can't pinpoint one or two and say, yeah, that, that's what did it. Uh, I look at it personally and say, I, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, real housing prices, real estate prices, basically, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like a bond but with, with a roof over it. So you look at it. Uh, in, in simpler terms, what I mean by that is, is interest rates in December of 2018 and into January of 2019, you had five-year fixed mortgage rates uh, hovering around 3.6%. So uh, when you're talking about house prices where they are, um, and most people, the reality is most people have to borrow a lot of money uh, to get into the housing market, when you have interest rates tick up from up to 3.6% and you're borrowing $800,000, $900,000, you know that 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 increases your 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 monthly coring coring costs a lot, and then we actually saw what happened was in the bond market is we saw these five year fixed mortgages go from three point six all the way down to about two point six percent. So when you're talking uh, a full one percent drop in in mortgage interest rates, um, I think that makes a huge impact on the market. So I think you know that that helped. Uh, I think that people have started to digest you know the mortgage stress test. The BC speculation tax, empty homes tax. I think a lot of those policies initially shocked the market. Obviously, when those policies are brought in, people naturally expect prices to move lower, which they did. And then what we saw was basically, um, you know, mortgage rates coming off 100 basis points, and that sort of helped spur some activity in the market. Okay, first half of 2019, the market was pretty soft. But as you mentioned, Steve, uh, market bouncing back. To so, what did you call it? Kind of a normalization of the market that we've seen. Yeah, it's, it's a normalization. I mean, I think there's a, people are drawing a lot of conclusions and, and extrapolations of recent performance, you know, in, into the future in 2020. Um, it, it's really hard to say what the outlook is, but I would basically just say, listen, you know, the first half of 2019 was abnormally weak. I mean, having a 20-year low in, in home sales when you have basically an economy at full employment, you know, wage growth at 4 or 5%. Um, you know, inflows of population, like that, it shouldn't be that low. So I think it was initially very, very low because everyone thought interest rates were going higher. People thought prices were moving lower. And now what we've seen is basically some of that pent up demand has started to pull the trigger. So we've seen basically sales go from 20 year lows to basically a normalization, which is a, a drastic shift in really just a couple months. But um, yeah, so it, it's hard to say necessarily what the outlook is going to be for 2020. But I mean, we can certainly dive into some of those, some of those pieces. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm interested in your take on 2020, for sure. What about the um, 
offshore buyers and foreign buyers in the market is is that kind of dried up or are we still seeing a lot of money coming in from places like china into the real estate market here yeah so i think that's an important uh, conclusion to to look at so basically the market right now is still extremely segregated so um, you know, the high-end luxury market is still very soft. There, there's no there's no questions about that. Uh, I think a lot of that has to do that the, the Chinese money uh, is simply not purchasing to the levels that it was, obviously, in, in the boom that we had uh, several years ago. So right. Chinese money is pulled back. That's not necessarily just a Vancouver phenomenon. I think that's happening in a lot of these major metros across North America. Uh, so that luxury market is still really soft. What we're seeing is is most of the activity is actually in the quote-unquote, more affordable segments of the market where basically locals here that are earning local incomes, well, you know, what can they afford? So we're seeing, you know, one-bedroom, two-bedroom condos, uh, entry-level single-family detached houses. Uh, those are doing quite well. Okay, how about housing starts and construction in, in the city? Because one of the things that whenever I talk to people in the, in the real estate sector, they often say, you know, the government's bringing in a lot of taxes to try and cool off this market. Why don't we just... Do instead of doing demand side stuff, why don't we do supply side stuff and build more stuff? Like let's build more houses people can buy. Like what's the situation with housing starts right now? Yeah, so I mean I definitely am, am in the camp that you know the government has gotten in the way and they have slowed. I mean I think housing you know, housing starts or housing under construction could certainly be higher, but to say that you know we have been building uh, is definitely an understatement. We actually have just over 45,000 units, uh, new homes under construction across greater Vancouver. Uh, okay. that's, and that is an all-time record high. So a lot of those units will start to complete uh, in the next you know, 12 to 24 months. Uh, housing starts are actually just around all-time highs right now as well, um, or very close to it. So uh, there's a lot of new construction on the way. I mean, obviously, I, I am in the camp that you know, that number probably could be higher. Um, but at the end of the day, we, are, we do have a record number of new homes coming to the market uh, over the next several years. So I think that uh, will certainly help keep uh, keep things in check here moving forward. Okay, are they selling well? I mean, are they like pre-sale condos? How are they doing? Yeah, yeah. so I mean, part of that is, yeah, a lot the pre-sale market, uh, it is still relatively sluggish. Um, I think a lot of that, too, has to do with, with the demand in, uh, you know, from, from overseas. Uh, the reality is there's a lot of the high-rise concrete, you know, buildings, the big towers were marketed uh, overseas and they did garner a lot of interest. So uh, that market still isn't really buying, uh, you know, uh, at the pace that they used to be. So we're seeing, uh, you know, weak activity in that market. You know, you're seeing a lot of developers offering incentives and we should see a lot, a lot of those developer incentives start to ramp up in the Chinese New Year coming up here. Okay, how about you mentioned um, affordability and and the more affordable sector of the market, if we can call it that? Are there any parts of Metro Vancouver where, you know, that you that you sort of see what what are the sort of the price trends of sort of across the region? Uh, well, I mean, I can tell you, like specifically like in the city of Vancouver. I mean, if you're looking for a one bedroom under, you know, six hundred six hundred fifty thousand, there's a good chance you're going to be in multiple offers. Um, that's, there's just really not a whole lot of supply still, um, for that affordability stuff. Like, you know, if you look at stuff that, you know, we've been building, say in the city of Vancouver, I mean, a lot of these developments are getting launched at 1500 bucks a square foot and up. So, uh, that's just not really, you know, an attainable price for, for a lot of buyers. And so you're still seeing a lot of, you know, these local buyers get back, trying to get into the resale market, you know, 10, 15, 20 year old buildings that are priced 
you know, under that sort of 600K threshold, um, there's just still a shortage of supply for, for that product. Okay, Steve, what do you see in 2020? Uh, I think that, that, you know, nothing has really changed from a structural standpoint. I mean, I think that uh, obviously Vancouver is always a global city and there's going to be demand there. But I think that there are still some structural things that, again, we've talked about record supply coming to the market uh, over the next couple of years. Uh, I mean, obviously, we know the, you know, I think the economy is clearly starting to slow down. We have Canadian consumer insolvencies growing at their fastest pace in, in uh, you know, 20 years. Uh, the labor market is certainly slowing down, et cetera. So I think that those are certainly headwinds that we'll be watching. Uh, I think interest interest rates play a key component. Um, those start to come up again, but still you have mortgages yeah. under 3%. So that that's a headwind. So I think overall, you know, if you're asking to sort of summarize it, uh, just maybe crystal ball it, I think that it's going to be a relatively subtle 2020. I wouldn't expect, um, you know, any, any sort of drastic downturn, but I don't really think you're going to see you know, uh, price acceleration that uh, I think a lot of people have sort of been banking on over the last couple of months. What does your gut tell you about interest rates in the new year going up? I mean, but the economy's softening. I wonder if the interest rates might stay where they are. Yeah, that's the thing. I think uh, that's a hard one to pinpoint because I think yeah. that uh, we're starting to see yields push up again. Uh, there's this kind of reflation trade globally in asset prices, and I think we're starting to you know, Vancouver is a beneficiary of that. Uh, but if there's a true reflation and a recovery, so to speak, uh, in the market, thanks to, you know, central banks aggressively cutting interest rates, then your yield should naturally push higher, which again is now becomes a headwind for housing. So uh, I'm personally in the camp that uh, towards, you know, later on, I think that we're still going to see lower yields. I think that the economy's, uh, in my opinion, is going to continue to slow, but it, that's, that's really hard to say. All right. If I, if I had to guess, that would be my guess. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Judy in White Rock, hi. Hi. Hi there, Judy. What well, do you want to say? Um, well, I think what would really help, I am a developer out here, I think what would really help the public to understand the whole process and why there isn't affordable housing at all is to have free symposiums put on by contractors, developers, architectural firms, government. There, it is such a complicated situation of one. There is no land, and if there is, it is jammed in or you're waiting for construction and rezoning to come in from the cities. There's enormous millions of dollars that are asked by the cities to be put up front before you ever start out of the ground. The delay on the time from the city planning departments, then you've got your materials to build and try and find them at a common sense value because later you're going to sell it to the public and they can't afford those costs. Then try to find the guys who build the building. Right yeah, now they say there's yeah. a shortage of staff. I can tell you there isn't in the construction field. There's nobody wanting to do the job. The young guys, they want to go home. It's Friday night. So I would suggest education to the public so they understand. Also, once you get it up, if you can, at the cost you will go at a minimum. What young person in this province is going to be able to afford on a monthly and live his life three, four, five hundred thousand dollars worth of rate? I don't care what the interest rate is. Okay, Judy, thank you very much for the call. You know what, Steve? That's kind of a, a replay of a, a discussion I've had with a lot of developers and builders in Metro Vancouver over the past year with some of the complaints that they got. But what, your thoughts on her comments? Yeah, I think it's a valid argument. Like, uh, I think that there's certainly like a lot of bureaucracy around development here. Uh, I mean, like, 
you know, at the end of the day, is like you can't really please everybody, right? So, you know, nobody, if for example, it's like it's such a long process. You have to get the whole neighborhood on board, go through this long, lengthy rezoning process. You know, we don't want density in our neighborhood. Well, it's like, you know, you, you, you realistically you just can't have both. You can't have, you know, a, affordable housing and then, you know, but you, if you don't want to, you know, upzone or densify, like, I mean, you're talking single family homes that, you know, two, three, four million dollars. You have to think who's the, who's the who's the buyer for that product in five, right. 10, fifteen right. years. Yeah. Uh, it's certainly not going to be the millennials coming up. No, let's go to Jane in Victoria. Hi, Jane. It doesn't matter if they build a billion houses, uh, and I'm not a golfer, but I think they should leave the, leave the golf courses alone. But the houses that they're building, the majority of them are going to people from the rest of Canada or from foreign countries. I think it's time we put a law on that we don't sell to foreign countries, and citizenship used to be seven years. It, then it reduced it many years ago to two years. I think it should be back to seven or ten years. And maybe it's less than two now. Okay. And, and all the houses are building does not help people that ha- have have generations from BC and Canada because they can't afford it. So okay, Jane. Okay, Jane. It doesn't thanks. matter how many they build. It's it's only it's not doing any good to the people that are right. British Columbians. It's doing a good for pe- they're just bringing more people from Canada and the other part of the world. Well, how much can Canada hold? Thank Do you p- for thank you for the call, uh, Steve. We just got thirty seconds left. Despite that, as you said, you've you've seen kind of a drying up of the offshore sales in your estimation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's kind of pivoted back to to the local market. Uh, yeah, I think it's just kind of reality, which I think is okay. probably a, a sigh of relief for for a lot of uh, I guess local people here trying to enter the housing market. Although, although the prices still are high, as as uh, as as has been pointed out several times today. Steve, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Take you care. Bet. Steve Soretsky, Vancouver Realtor. He's a, and a housing analyst. Uh, phone me on the buzz line if you didn't get through. 604-331-2899. When we come back, uh, let's go back to our hot topic today. Vancouver's municipal golf courses, should they be turned into social housing? This is Mike Smith. Stick around. Can we solve Vancouver's housing crisis by doing this? Get rid of the city's municipal-owned golf courses and turn them into social housing and green space instead. We talked about this earlier on the show with Trisha Barker. She is a Vancouver Park Board commissioner. The Vancouver Park Board will be opening up public consultation on possible alternative uses for Langara golf club that's one of the city's three publicly funded publicly owned municipal golf courses that's going to happen in the new year so get set for the debate on this about alternative uses for the city's golf courses now trisha barker though she's dead set against the idea here's what she told me uh i think it's a little crazy to even contemplate doing anything like that with our golf courses okay why is that well we actually need um, as much green space as we can get, and to start removing some of that is just outrageous because if we remove that, we're never going to get it back. And um, as many people know, I'm a huge supporter of the seniors in this city, and these golf courses do so much to help our seniors that um, we would then have to start dealing with other problems if we took these golf courses away. All right, let's get the other side of this now with my guest, Patrick Condon. He's with the School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture at UBC, and he recently co-wrote an interesting uh, essay on this for the TIE, the headline, Time for Vancouver to Turn Its Golf Courses into Homes. 
Very interesting. Patrick, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Give me your take on this topic about what should be done with Vancouver's municipal golf courses. What do you think? Well, uh, I know it's a contentious issue, but uh, my soundbite is we don't have a golf course crisis. We have a housing crisis. And we actually have seven golf courses in the city of Vancouver alone and about around 20 within a half-hour drive. So we're not we're not at a loss for places to golf. And the other four in this city have green fees that are not a whole lot different than the green fees for the city of Vancouver courses. So what turned our attention to it was the problem in this city for the housing crisis is not the cost of the house. It's actually the cost of the land. Uh, land has uh, increased in value tremendously. And then when you look around and you say, well, land costs a lot. Do we have a lot of land that we could use? Yeah. And the answer is uh, the the three square kilometers of golf course space. And we did a quick calculation that generated the, the estimate of the value of those lands at $20 billion. Wow. And our proposal wasn't just to use it for social housing and have no green space. Our suggestion was half of it would be turned into a publicly accessible park land, which it's not now. You're not allowed to go on there unless you're golfing, and those parts of the city don't have big park spaces. And then with the remaining 50%, do it like they did for South Falls Creek, one-third market, one-third middle class, one-third social, and the market uh, housing will provide enough money when sold because of the high price of the land, the high value of the land, to generate enough money to build the middle class and the social housing, you would end up getting 20,000 new units of affordable housing pegged to 30% of your income, mm. 20,000 units, which would take a huge bite out of our local housing crisis. What we have is a crisis for people who can't afford to live here based on the low, on the low salaries they have. So we thought that this was a huge opportunity and uh, i understand it's contentious and i guess that's right. sort of why we put it out there to get a conversation going well i'll tell you you really did spark a conversation for sure and when you did that calculation on the value of the land of vancouver's three municipal three municipal golf courses they're 20 billion dollars my god that is an astonishing number for for sure but when you make the argument that there are other places to golf if you got rid of the municipal golf courses one of the themes we heard earlier on the show today from people calling in who are opposed to the idea, Patrick, was, well, look, right now to go and golf at a municipal golf course in Vancouver, it's at least affordable. If you're going to go to one of these private golf courses with a Shaughnessy Golf Club or Point Grey Golf Club, you're going to pay a fortune. It's not, it's not affordable for most people. What are your thoughts? I think that's an exaggeration. You can go online and see what the greens fees are in those locations during the off season, during weekends, during the summer, during the winter, and you'll find that they're not they're not they're not twice as much as the existing green fees for the city uh, the city courses. And also, if you go a little right. bit further afield, you'll be able to find a absolutely equivalent green fees. So, I understand the reservation, but I don't think it holds water. Okay, what about the argument that? If you get rid of the city's golf courses, which uh, have been there for a long time, they're kind of historic parts of the city that it's just kind of a race to the bottom of getting rid of green spaces that 
can be accessible to, say, senior citizens who get out there and enjoy an affordable round of golf or in, or getting young people involved in the program with some of the youth programs they have at these courses. Isn't that a good thing to be getting people out and enjoying the outdoors? Yeah, all things have consequences. And we have a, we have a dramatic crisis here in the city of Vancouver. It, it has to do with having housing that's appropriate for our young families. So I have more yeah. sympathy for their plight than I do with golfers. Golf, golf nationally and internationally is declining. And while people will debate that, that is in fact the case. Very few people, people can afford not just the money for green fees, but, but the time necessary to take almost a whole day out so that so that as a recreational pursuit it's not as popular by any means as it was 50 years ago much more needed in the city is is uh uh, natural areas for passive recreation for going for walks for uh for that kind of activity in the south end of the city where all three of these courses are are very deficient in natural areas the other thing to say in this respect is golf courses you are not ecological. They look green, but they're not ecological. They take a tremendous amount of pesticides, water, uh, lawn mowing every other day, such that uh, uh, the estimates show that the average golf course is the equivalent to 130 automobiles in terms of the greenhouse gases that it, gener- that it generates. Mm. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things to say in opposition to the to the point of view that you've just expressed. All right. Speaking to Patrick Condon from UBC about Vancouver's municipal golf courses and what should be done about them, when you take a look at uh, the three city-owned golf courses, Fraser View, Langara, and McCleary Golf Clubs, would you say, in, in terms of the the feasibility of converting this land into housing and green spaces, could you comment on that? Like, how accessible are these places in terms of for public transit and the terrain? How easily could that terrain be turned into other purposes like housing? Well, I think the first one that people have discussed, and I agree, is Langara, which is pretty yeah. close to the, the Candle Line and a whole other host of new amenities along that Canby Corridor. So that would be where you'd probably start. But something has to be done. And in my view, we should start Monday. Okay, are any other cities doing this around North America? Is this sort of a trend that's catching on, or is it just an idea of people just whistling into the wind on it, or any other cities actually doing this? There are dozens and dozens of cities throughout North America that are converting golf courses for housing, not for the particular reasons that we're doing it or that we're suggesting to deal with the housing crisis, but merely because the golf courses have actually gone bankrupt in many of those locations. A lot of new communities built around golf courses found out very quickly that the the revenue coming into the golf courses was not sufficient for their maintenance, so they've had to be abandoned. So in, in short answer to your question, yes, there are dozens and dozens of places where golf courses are turning into housing now. Is it feasible to convince this park board or to convince the, the residents of this city to go along with the idea that you're proposing? We've done a, a Twitter poll uh, on the topic today, unscientific, of course, but it's running better, better than two to one, basically, to keep the golf courses the way they are. So I don't know. It sounds like a bit of an uphill fight. It is an uphill fight. You know, and I, I'm, I'm a realist on this one, but, you know, I have to I have to express my concern to the young families who would like to be living in Vancouver, who can't live in Vancouver now under these present circumstances. And the market has shown itself completely unable to 
uh, produce housing for that cohort, making average incomes. Why? The reason is the land is too expensive. The answer to that problem is where have we got the land and the golf courses are the places that we have the land. So if the citizens of this city are are realistic and serious about finding affordable housing for their sons and daughters and their grandchildren, they really ought to look again at the opportunities that these golf courses present. Okay, it's a fascinating debate. Thanks for coming on to talk about it. My pleasure. I appreciate it. That's Patrick Condon, UBC's School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture.